The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Great show lined up for you tonight. We're going to be talking with Philip Kraske. Philip is an author and a satirist. He is going to be talking about false flag ops and the deep state. If you don't know what any of that means, well, you'll find out in just a few minutes, actually. Um, he's got a book out called 11-9 and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees. Again, if you don't know what that means, we'll find out in a few minutes. But um, something I wanted to uh, chat about briefly, because it seems to be uh, popping up everywhere. You probably know at least one person. And in recent months or last six months or so, I know many all of a sudden who have been diagnosed with Lyme's disease. Orion, you probably know some people, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, it seems to be everywhere all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, it's, it's, it's a disease that uh, is tick-borne. Most people know that. And um, it's, if it's caught early, there are things that can be used to treat it. Uh, it's not an easy disease to treat by any means. Uh, but the longer it goes untreated, the worse uh, the symptoms become and the harder it is to correct those symptoms. But there's always been discussion, and we've had guests on this program have talked about Lyme's disease as being a possible biological weapon that was created by the U.S. military or maybe the CIA or maybe a foreign government. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever it happens to be, there this you know this this scuttlebutt continues to permeate the discussion, and a lot of people want some answers, mm-hmm. including and this is a bit refreshing um, a congressman by the name of. Chris Smith of New Jersey is hoping that he will get some answers from the Pentagon, from the U.S. Defense Department. He, and this is a quote, he says, my hope is this jumpstarts a very aggressive effort to not to find a cure and see how this Lyme disease is growing. It's pushing out into the Great Lakes area. It's exploding everywhere. And uh, he's a longtime advocate for Lyme disease research, and his district in New Jersey is actually one of the hotbeds for the disease. So the House of Representatives has added a Smith Amendment to the federal defense spending bill that would actually require the Department of Defense's inspector general to investigate whether the military between the years, and this is kind of specific, 1950 and 1975, actually experimented with ticks and other insects to be used as biological weapons uh, and thereby uh, unleashing, maybe unwittingly, a disease like Lyme disease on the American public. Hmm. Any thoughts on that? I mean, you've probably heard those stories, too. I have, um, and we were actually looking uh, at at a guest to talk about that topic. Um, I I mean, anything's possible, right? Um, Although... Who knows? There's, Who knows? there's. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Then I should know this. It should be on the top of my tongue, and it's not. Unfortunately, there's uh, an island right off the coast of Connecticut that has a known research facility on it. And why am I not coming up with the name of it? I'm sure well, folks in chat it's will. It's named for Lyme, Connecticut, the disease. Yes, but Is I know that... that's what I'm saying. But there's an island oh, okay. right it's off separate. the coast of Connecticut near Lyme, Connecticut, mm. that is a known research facility for the Defense Department. And oh. that is the facility that folks claim this biological weapon was um, experimented with and uh, mistakenly or um, accidentally released into the public. So mm. it'll be interesting to see what this does. I don't know you know, if this, if this will pass. I don't know if it'll become a real investigation. But um, this congressman read a book called Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons by an, a science writer named Chris Newby. And that led him to believe some of the things that we talk about here, which is that Lyme disease very well could have been an attempt at a biological weapon. Hmm. And uh, he's going to see if the, if the Congress and the U.S. military will give us some answers. So that'll be, that'll be interesting. But I know that, I know that the, the disease is quite, I know the disease is quite um, difficult to, to tackle. And um, and uh, it's it's something that a lot of people have suffered with, and it's also very very difficult to diagnose. I know that uh, tests for the disease are not perfect, and you can get many many false uh, negatives and still have it. And then you know, and, and you get a negative or two, and you you just stop looking when in fact you are 
uh, infected with this disease. And the tick population has exploded. Again, you know, I'm in upstate New York. You know, we never really dealt with um, severe tick infestations. But now, um, you know, you have to check yourself every time you go outside, not just in the woods, but in your own backyard. I mean, it's it's striking. Yeah, I, I've, for whatever reason, have never had a tick on me, thank God, knock on wood. But, uh, you know, I found one on my daughter's face last week. <laughs> wow. Just yeah. there. Not yeah. had, hadn't attached yet. Uh, no. Well, it, it was quite early, but. Yeah, yeah. boy, I tell you. You got to, you, and if anyone is uh, in an area that has ticks, which is now most of the country, uh, you really do need to keep an eye on it because um, it's uh, not just Lyme maybe disease. Maybe literally. Here's one for you. Uh, a friend of mine, somebody at her work, had a tick on his eyeball under the eyelid Ooh. attached to the eyeball. And didn't recognize that right away? Well, or? felt something in his eye, but it was under the eyelid. Wow. Uh, yeah, true story. We had a story not long ago about a woman who went to the doctor for eye pain, and she had four bees oh. living in in the gap between the eye and the inner, you know, inside oh part God. by the nose. These little sweat bees had uh-huh. nested in there. But I tell you, <laughs> truth is stranger than fiction. Hey, um, looking ahead to what we've got coming up on the program Tomorrow night, Natasha Rosewood will be with us. Natasha is a quantum healer and an inspirer of intuitive intelligence and an author. And she'll help listeners clear their ghosts from the past, whether they're alive or dead. And then looking to next week, Michael Mays. I almost said Michael Myers. That's just because I'm a Halloween fan. Uh, Michael Mays will be with us. He's a cryptid seeker and an author. And he'll brief us on Chupacabras, Black Pumas, and his recent trip to Area X. And then also next week, we've got Kathleen Martin, an author and UFO researcher. She's going to tell us what to do if you think you've been abducted. That's something that... um, Yeah, it's a a very practical guide to contact. And a lot of people um, who ultimately realize or claim they've been abducted uh, didn't have knowledge of it for a very, very long time. And then under hypnosis or something, it comes out. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so Kathleen will help us uh, know what to do if we think and if we, in fact, have been abducted. So a lot of great shows coming up here on Beyond Reality Radio. Again, tonight we're going to be talking with Philip Kraske. We're going to be talking about false flag ops and the deep state. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save welcome back to the program it's beyond reality radio by the way the phone number to join our conversation later in the program is 844-687-7669 our guest tonight is phil kraske phil is an author he's a satirist his website is philipkraske.com and his new book is called 11-9 and the terrorist who loved bonsai trees phil welcome to beyond reality radio pleasure to have you here thanks for having me on jb so um, I want to get a little bit of the backstory here. You were born and raised in the United States, but you left at a fairly early age. Tell us what happened. Well, I lived in Spain my third year abroad. That would have been way back in the day in 1980. And uh, then I returned to the U of Minnesota. I also studied in France. And uh, I returned to the U of Minnesota, finished my degree degree in 83. And, uh, well, I eventually um, gravitated back to Spain and I've been here since 85. I love love the the anecdote that you uh, mentioned on your website when you talk about making that transition and you reference the fact that there was a day that um, in the halftime of the Super Bowl, you'd get to watch uh, some young kids with a pat... Uh, a pass punch, uh, a pass punt contest, and uh, when it went Hollywood was kind of the time you left, and that might not be a coincidence. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, back in the day, uh, the the Super Bowl was a you know very serious sporting contest, and uh, I'm sure it's still quite serious for the athletes who take part in it. For the rest of us, it's <laughs> it's just, and uh, so I've. Uh, 
I uh, left America about the time it started unserious. So why why Spain and why Madrid? Well, number one, if you're from Minnesota like me, uh, Spain, where the temperature in winter is, oh, it gets down to freezing, uh, has obvious obvious advantages. And uh, they uh, also were here in the uh, center of Spain, where I live, which is where Madrid is. It's right in the center of the the peninsula uh, comprised of uh, Spain and Portugal. The summers are very comfortable. The temperature gets up in the 90s and the 100s, but the air is so dry that as long as it's quite comfortable. So I've always loved the weather here. Um, Beautiful sunny mornings uh, just about every day. And, and, uh, you know, and I like the Spanish lifestyle. So uh, it's uh, it's real, uh, a really good move in my my, my uh, life. And in addition to uh, writing, you also have spent a great deal of time teaching English uh, in Spain. Is that correct? Right. That's how I earn my bread. I'm um, a freelance English teacher, and I, um, I contract directly with companies for English classes. And... Uh, so, for example, my our staff and executives, people who uh, either have a lot of international contra- uh, contracts, contacts because they, their clients are international, or company itself is international. So a lot of my companies, for example, their headquarters is in London. And uh, so they all have to go to meetings there and, and so on and write their emails in English. And that's where I... We um we've noticed a real uh, shift in attitude domestically here in the United States, and um, many of the products we buy are now uh, have uh, instructions or labels in both English and Spanish, and Spanish is being taught uh, to more students. Um, so as we uh, start to embrace Spanish as another uh, acceptable language here in the United States for everyday use, um, are you seeing any shift in Spain uh, recognizing that? Um, I see a lot more people learning English because that's the way that uh, you get uh, in business. Yes, right. uh, absolutely. And now uh, um, the Spanish government was slow to implant English in the educational system. That's where people like me come in. I would imagine that my kind of work will probably run for about another 10, 15 years and then probably peter out because you'll already have a a lot of people come job market uh, with good English. At what point? Did, um, but at yeah, what, yeah. At what point did you decide yeah, to become an author as well? I mean, writing isn't something that everybody, first of all, can do, but also not everybody aspires to do that. But certain people really want to tell a story in one fashion or another. What made you decide you wanted to do that? Well, I come from a writing family in the first place. My father is the author of nearly twenty children's books. He writes for about the second grade level. And uh, my brother's a, a journalist. And uh, uh, so it runs the family in the first place. And uh, I've always uh, written ever since I, I came abroad. And about uh, the 2000s when I started to publish uh, my, my novels. And in the book uh, that we're going to be referencing tonight, Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees, that's not your first book. That's number five. Uh, my other four books, which are also uh, uh, thrillers, some political, some not. Uh, my third book is a is, um, uh, romance connected with a, a business thriller. Um, this is uh, something that I've been doing now, really writing novels uh, since the 90s. And uh, they've only you know, come to fruition uh, about 10 years ago. We're talking with Phil Kraske, and, and Phil, so you know, we're having a little bit of a breakup in your audio, so uh, during our break coming up here in just a minute, we're going to try to reconnect to get a better connection. Um, you, you, the, the book that we're going to talk about tonight, it's, it's, a f- it's fiction, but it's based on uh, worldly events and this false flag ops discussion that we're going to have tonight. Yeah, it's, uh, 
David Ray Griffin says on the blurb on the cover, the uh, the the title eleven nine implies a mirror image of nine eleven. It's uh, a separate case, but it's reflection of nine uh, eleven. Um, tell us about the book. Give us an idea of what this book's about. Well, this is uh, a thriller, and uh, it's uh, the story starts when Trudy, who's a sort of quiet conservative statistician, arrives at her company, a digital marketing firm, to start her first day of work. Uh, the company's a converted brownstone in Jersey City, which is right across the river from Manhattan. She goes in and sees these paramilitary guys all over the place and a bunch of dead people laid out in the living room. Uh, and one of the military paramilitaries tries to grab her, but she gets away. Uh, Twenty minutes later, a car with six terrorists who just botched their job of planting a bomb in the Empire State Building, uh, they pull up at the same house with the police on their tail. The terrorists run inside, a hostage standoff takes place, the hostages ostensibly being the employees of the company. Uh, this ends badly, and because the majority of the terrorists are discovered to be Iranian, well, now the U.S. wants to go to war with Iran. So what we have is a false flag op that ends in war with Iran, which, by the way, might sound familiar. So on one side, we have the story of Trudy, who uh, is presented to the public as one of the terrorists. Um, she's the terrorist who loves bonsai trees. And she's running from the people who are chasing her because they, she knows that the whole event was staged. And on the other side of the story is Paul Clippin, who is an uh, American State Department official. And uh, he's trying to keep a deep state cabal from starting this war with Iran. And I'll give your, your listeners a, a, a hint, J.B. Paul and Trudy have met before. I won't say anything more. So when we use the phrase false flag ops, what exactly are we talking about? A false flag op is uh, an attack staged by one country in order to, to provoke their countrymen into war against somebody else. It's a fairly common tactic that's been used uh, in history. And uh, even, for example, Germany used it uh, to uh, go to war against Poland. They, they, they staged an attack on German troops and then they, they went to war with Poland. Yeah, if I remember correctly, didn't they put some somebody, I don't know if it was prisoners or something, in Polish uniforms and uh, and had a quote-unquote attack on a, on, a, on a German radio station or something, if I remember the story? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. It rings a bell, yeah. And then the next day they invaded, yeah. Um, now, are false, are false flag ops um, the tool of superpowers, uh are they the tool of rogue governments, or are they everybody's tool? Well, I suppose it's uh, everybody's. Uh, America has been accused of uh, false flag ops, and uh, other countries that have started war uh, have been accused of them. Um, I think even uh, North Korea staged something before they invaded uh, South Korea. Um, but, yeah, they're uh, they're fairly, fairly common in... Uh, in history, a lot of people say that uh, the uh, the attack on the the ship, the Maine, uh, is what started uh, the Spanish-American War. Many people think that was a false flag op put on by the Americans because they wanted to go to war. In writing this book, were you looking at any particular event in American history? Obviously, there's a 9/11 connection here too. But was there anything specific uh, that made you? Uh, write this book, and is there a message there that you uh, are, are looking for um, maybe those who might have had their eyes and ears closed to some of these things um, that they should be seeing? Well, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is that I felt that somebody had to stick up for the alternative version of 9-11. Um, it had been largely passed over all of the books, uh, uh, thrillers, uh, political thrillers of this type, uh, they're always with this fairly muscular bunch of Americans who uh, are very righteous and uh, and uh, go away, and, you know, go into some country and blow away all these terrorists and all of that. And the terrorists, of course, are always the these horrible, uh, you know, uh, baby eating uh, uh, creatures. Um, 
And uh, so with that and uh, a couple of uh, uh, other things in mind, just having seen a lot of rather dirty uh, dealings in American foreign policy, which is what I studied. I studied international relations. Um, that's why I wanted to write this book, because it seemed to me that the alternative theories of 9-11 were quite valid and that somebody had to stick up for those theories and present that point of view to the public. And especially what I wanted to show people was how easy it is to put on one of these these uh, events, and the media goes along. Everything that's told to the public uh, is is very smoothly swallowed, and uh, it's not a uh, it's not this uh, uh, massive uh, risk that uh, they're taking to to put on these events. Uh, it's fairly easy, and uh, it can be done with a fairly small number of people. Uh, you said a bunch of things in there that we're going to break down as this conversation continues, but tell us what the significance of the title is. Obviously, the 11-9 is a reference to 9-11, but what does the rest of it refer to? Um, well, the, the title implies two aspects, the two aspects of the novel. 9-11, uh, 11-9, that is, implies uh, drama, a terrorist event. The terrorist who loved bonsai trees implies comedy, and that this is a very hum- humane story about uh, vulnerable people, and uh, that uh, this is uh, uh, going to be a-, a book that's half drama and half comedy. One of the things the book addresses is the idea that uh, many people who argue against a conspiracy theory or an alternative theory of of a historical event, we've seen it with 9-11, we've seen it with JFK, they often say that, you know, if this in fact was this conspiracy or it happened this alternative way, someone would have spoken up about it. Someone would have squealed by now. But you address that in the book, right? Yeah, yeah, very much. Uh, You see, there, there are two points to that. Number one is that somebody actually goes and talks. And I would imagine that in the wake of 9-11, uh, in, the, in the years after that, probably lots of people very discreetly contacted reporters and said, look, I know something about 9-11, and I, I can tell you uh, some important things. And probably the, the reporters you know, uh, the reporter who gets this uh, information, uh, you know, figures he's got a a Pulitzer Prize for the taking. And here's a story that implies that Americans, not necessarily the government, because I'm not so sure that it's the government we're talking about, but that it implies that Americans were responsible for 9-11. So this this, uh, reporter writes up his story. He goes to his, his editor or in the, in the network, it would be the producer, and he says, I've got this, and this is really explosive stuff, and so on and so forth. And the editor, you know, rubs uh, his neck and says, well, you know, this, this is pretty, pretty big stuff. This is practically revolutionary. We're not going to go with it. And the reporter says, why? And because this is revolutionary. And, you know, the, the editor might, might say, okay, this is so revolutionary, you've got to come back to me with two other sources, three other sources, and every single one of them has got to go on the record, and you've all got to be just impeccable sources. And, of course, the story never gets out. And uh, I would imagine that uh, also a lot of people who know a small part of the puzzle, okay, who, who were told to do this or not do that on 9-11, uh, these people have seen what has happened to uh, to uh, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, Bill Binney, John Kiriako, uh, and others, and uh, and they don't uh, they don't want to get into the same trouble, so they don't talk. And also, there's an aspect of this about the alternative theories of of any big event, uh, even with uh, these these shootings that go on here and there. There are alternative theories which are never reported, and that is that. Reporters hate truthers of 9-11, of whatever. Number one, because the truthers scoop them, all right? The second is that the truthers 
have the freedom to talk about what they are investigating. They have the, the freedom to go after it tooth and nail. And the reporters know that they cannot because they know what the editorial line of the, of the newspaper is. They don't have to be directed. They don't have to be told, write this and don't write that. That's not the way it is. The reporters know what they can do and what they can't. And, of course, these reporters, who are they? They're basically winners in the rat race of, of life. They're people making good six-figure salaries, and they do not want to rock the boat. And so they have a natural, uh, a natural hatred of truthers, which comes out all the time uh, whenever, uh, whenever you see a reporter mention uh, uh, alternative theories of any big event. I've often thought, and I may have it completely wrong, that uh, news media in particular, but the reporters that work for the media, um, would want to be the ones to be the first with a story. And in many cases, they'll report things without sources, not, not, not at that level, but at other levels, particularly when it's a political figure involved, uh, without necessary verification of sources. Um, so at what point in that chain, is it just that they don't want to uh, contradict maybe an official story from the, US, the federal government? Or wh- where's the protection coming from? Well, I, th- I think you, you, you draw, uh, you got to draw a very important line here, uh, JV. There's a big difference in reporting on domestic issues as opposed to foreign policy or security matters. Now, you can go after a, a, a Watergate because that's just one president who, of course, was not uh, well liked as, as, uh, as the, the, uh, uh, the investigation uh, in, in full, uh, opened up. Right. And um, so it was okay to go after that. But to go after a foreign policy or security matters, basically saying that the government has been lying to you, that's a very different matter indeed. One thing is to go after a politician. That's, on, that's, that's in the game. I mean, you can see everybody going after Trump, for example. Right. But to go after the government and saying that an agency, the CIA, the FBI, I mean, these are these are you know, holy words among Americans. These are the people fighting for us. To say that they were purposely lying to us, now that's a very different matter indeed. And reporters are not happy to cross that line. You can do it on small, you know, things that sort of touch domestic politics as well. For example, the, uh, the prisoners tortured in Abu Ghraib in, uh, in Iraq. That's okay. But you cannot go and say that uh, the military has lied to us and they haven't made any of the progress that they've made and, and so on and so forth. Saying that, that's a very different matter. Or saying that the, for, the State Department has lied about uh, what it's doing here or doing there. That's, uh, that's a very a different thing. You know, I'll give you a good example. William Pfaff, P-F-A-F-F, if anybody wants to look it up. William Pfaff foreign affairs reporter for the International Herald Tribune, which is part New York Times and part Washington Post, now, now deceased, the poor newspaper. Anyways, he reported on foreign affairs for that newspaper, very prestigious uh, for its, its all, all of its existence. But he opposed the invasion of Iraq. He said it would be a terrible mistake and so on and so forth. He lost his column uh, immediately. It was canned there and in several other newspapers. But, and that's, that's the way it is. Right. Reporters know what they can say and what they can't. Do you feel like the reporting on the lack of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq after the Iraq war um, was, which category did it fall into? Because I felt like it was covered pretty, pretty fiercely. Um, yeah, yeah. I think uh, in, in the wake of that, Yes, I mean, after the war was over, yes. During the war, whoa, the New York Times was all in favor of it, and as were the other major newspapers. They were saying, yes, this exists, yes, it's a, a danger, etc., etc. And, uh, you know, and uh, those people uh, saw, their, saw their, uh, their careers prosper. So though there's, uh, there's a very clear bias of uh, what you can say and what you can't. In your book, the main character, Trudy, is uh, falsely labeled as a terrorist, and the media just runs with the story. Um, 
Are we seeing that today? Is that a common practice? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, the uh, uh, the the tactic of taking the the, the real story and and sort of uh, changing it in order to make it a a sort of more palatable uh, story is uh, is a very common thing. I think that you see that these days with uh, climate change. Um, uh, event and uh, how that's reported. It seems to me, reading uh, the reports of a lot of experts uh, in the alternative media, offline, uh, off, uh, you know, online and uh, different websites, it seems to me that the the situation is far worse than it is reported, and you get the impression on the mainstream media that if we simply lower our CO2 emissions and so on and so forth, that uh, everything is going to be okay. But if you, if you look, uh, for example, James Lovelock, a uh, British scientist who was actually one of the first people who uh, sounded the alarm on CO2 way back in the 70s, uh, he said, you know, there's nothing to be done about it now. Um, if humanity had started on a concerted effort after World War II to lower CO2 emissions, he said, now we'd have a fighting chance. But now there's so much CO2 in the air, and it's going to be there for a century, what is there right now, that there's really nothing to be done in that way. One of the things that he recommended towards the end of this book, The Revenge of Gaia, Gaia is Greek for Earth, um, one of many books he wrote on the theory of Gaia. Um, he, he wrote a series of recommendations about what could be done to deflect the radiation of the sun from Earth. But you never see any of those in uh, the mainstream media. It's, it's all about uh, cutting CO2. And I think that's one example of how the media is sweetening things for, uh, for the public. Let's jump to our listener line. This is Philip calling from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Philip, welcome to the show. Hi, um, JV. I, I, I appreciate you having this guest on. Philip Kraske is really hitting on some things that uh, piqued my interest uh, years ago. Um, Philip Kraske, you, I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, you know, I, I can't help but wonder if you don't know about Operation Mockingbird, and it plays right into what you were saying. Um, I watched. I think it was on YouTube, the the BBC reporter saying that building number seven had collapsed. And in the background, you could see building number seven, which had not collapsed. Um, my, I thought yeah, Mockingbird yeah. was supposed to have ended in the 70s, but I don't believe it has. Um, and to touch on it, it, I, it, it may be dangerous. The CIA is controlling what we hear. Um the the narrative now is frequently about fake news or or the deep state you hear deep the phrase deep state well yeah. um that's another phrase that could be replaced by other words you know and <clears throat> um deep state is more palatable um the CIA is a secret organization that has controlled the information flow in this country for um three generations, at least, and, well, since 1947, and it was created about the same time as the Roswell event, and um, James Forrestal uh, committed suicide. He jumped out of the 13th floor of the Bethesda Naval Hospital, and he was Secretary of Defense. Wait a minute. They wouldn't Mm -hmm. let his brother come and visit him. They wouldn't allow his priest to come visit him. But, the Secretary of Defense, the replacement, could see him, and the Secretary of the Army could come see him. Something's wrong with that story. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so it, it goes back to the inception, 1947. Yeah. Well, I think you make a very good point, Philip. Um, one of the things that really marks this period in history, um, I'm talking about since World War II mainly, is how we really do not have a sense anymore of what the history of the United States is 
for the simple reason that so much of what has happened has happened behind the curtain, and it's very difficult to get any real good information about it. Um, and, and, you know, the things that you bring up are, are, you know, symptoms of that, because they point to the fact that we don't know what the main movers of our history have been, really, since World War II. So much of it has uh, taken place in, in the dark and away from the public. And as I say, reporters, even if they find out about some of it, are very reluctant to challenge official versions of things. So what is our history? Really, we don't know. Uh, Philip in Charlotte, thank you so much for those great points and the phone call. We appreciate you listening as well. Um, in the book, ultimately, the government actually has to change its story. Is that some? Is that possible? And if, if a government can do that and change the account of something after a period of time has passed, uh, how does it accomplish such a thing? Well, in, yeah, in my book, there's a sort of a, a big 180-degree uh, turn in the official event, uh, the official ver- version of events that takes place. And so this is done through leaks to the public, which apparently are leaks, some, some vigorous reporter, you know, finding a, finding a source. And then there's another leak and another official says, well, yeah, things are a little different. And finally, when the new version comes out, it's as simple as, uh, it's as, simple as can be, and everybody, everybody swallows it. You know, to me, the, the parallel uh, between my book and 9-11 on that point is the, uh, the airplane that went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We're shown a smoking hole in the ground, and assured that under the ground, invisible to the eye, is an entire commercial airliner, which is crazy, which is dumb. That can't happen. If, a, if an airliner hits the ground, it breaks into a million pieces, and you can see them on the ground. It doesn't barrel into the ground. But you present that to people because obviously something went wrong with that aspect of, uh, of uh, 9-11, of what was supposed to happen. But people accept it because, well, all of these very, you know, good-looking reporters with nice hair are saying that this is what happened. But uh, it's obviously a lot of nonsense. What, in your opinion, is the historical meaning of the events of 9-11? The historical meaning? That's a very good question. You know, um, offhand, I would say basically two things. Um, First, in the classic decline of empire that America is following. 9-11, to me, marks the beginning of the drive for power of the military security sector. They are replacing the rich plutocracy that started, I would say, with the Reagan administration. Plutocracy, the uh, government of the rich, is the next-to-last step in the decline of empire. This is followed by military dictatorship, and that's what uh, 9-11 is. It, it is the, the bid for power of the military security sector. Now, of course, having said that, all of the forms of democracy are kept in place. We have elections, we have debates, etc., etc., fine and well. But really, behind the curtain, it's, uh, this is what is happening. The plutocracy is giving way to the military security dictatorship. Well, anyways, that's one point. The other, just more generally, is that the purpose of 9-11 was not just to go to the Middle East or attack Afghanistan, this and that. All of that, yes, that was was all part of it. But really, look, stepping back, you know, now that 18 years has passed, what you can see is that the purpose of 9-11 was to completely change the conversation before we had communism and now we have terrorism. And this, stu- this suits the interests of the deep state much more because terrorism, well, what is terrorism? It's a ghost. It, uh, before you had communism, and that was backed by a country, and that country had borders and a capital and a president and, and a currency, all of, you know, tangible things. But what is terror? Terror is a ghost. It's whatever you want it to be. Even these immigrants, these poor folks coming up from Central America, trying to get into the United States, they are occasionally labeled terrorists. 
And uh, so now, after 18, 18 years after 9-11, what do we have? We have Homeland Security, now the third largest bureaucracy in American government. And this is the response. This is the bid of the military security sector to secure their hold on America. And it's very effective, and uh, in that way, uh, they're... Their uh, conception of 9-11, which I think started way back uh, probably in, uh, uh, 10 years before 9-11, I think it's been very successful. But I want to, at the risk of starting a bit of a firestorm um, in our chat room and in probably in other places, um, I'm going to throw a couple things at you. Uh, going back to this idea that there's a change going on from... Um, to to a military uh, driven um, democracy will be less of a democracy, I guess. Um, you mentioned uh, you know several things that that are pointing to that. Now, are, are I'm going to list a couple things. Tell me if these are also pointing to that move. Um, the effort toward gun control, uh, the silencing of free speech by labeling things racist and hate. The idea that um, climate change laws, regulations, and taxes are restricting freedoms, and even maybe the the move uh, to controlling health care. Some people say that once you control health care, you control people. So are any of those pointing to this same movement? Boy, you know, that's, that's a tough one, uh, J.V. It seems to me that uh, you could interpret them uh, either way. Um, the gun control thing, for example, um, people who are gun enthusiasts say, no, we have to keep our, our guns because we'll need to overthrow the government and so on and so forth. Well, I don't really know how you're going to overthrow the government with a bunch of 9 millimeter Glocks. Um, if, there, if it ever comes to that in America, you know, you would need a concerted effort by a big number of citizens uh, to, to take up arms against the government. And I frankly don't see that, that that would happen. It seems to me that in that case, it would come down to a choice between um, uh, to a negotiation with, with the military, who of course have to worry about their own rank and file, uh, which way they're going to shoot their guns. But I don't think that I'm sorry. You know. Let me just interrupt that point for a second, uh, because what about if you have a completely disarmed America? And this is not the kind of conversation we normally have here, but I'm very curious as to your thoughts on it. We have a completely disarmed America. Now, you don't need a military anymore. You can do this with police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, it would be a question of people cooperating or not with, uh, with what the police are saying, really not a question of whether or not they can shoot guns at them. The moment you start shooting guns... You, you invite the other side to shoot guns, and, of right. course, they have a lot more, and they're, they're uh, organized. Right. So it seems to me that the question of guns really doesn't enter that much. Um, as for the other things, it seems to me very, very much a toss-up. Could you say that, that the healthcare business is trying to con- control people? Well, of course it would control people. Is that part of the, the uh, agenda of the military security complex? I don't know. It seems to me it could be. Uh, it's, it's obviously a way to, to control people. But whether or not it is, I don't know. You know, that's one of the points I make. We don't know American history anymore because we don't know what the big decisions, uh, where the big decisions have been made right. and who has made them. Right. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, you talk about 9-11 and you talk about the steps that were taken after 9-11 to, quote unquote, secure the country. And, um, you know, the agencies, whole bureaucracies were created and and laws like the Patriot, Patriot Act uh, took away a lot of freedoms. It actually didn't take away freedoms as it did give the government right to pry into our personal lives in a way that had never been done before. Do you see those as the same kind of dangers? Yes, that, that, that very much is uh, part of the, uh, the agenda of the military security area, to be able to find out uh, whatever they need uh, about any individual. That uh, very much is, and it's uh, a real danger to, uh, to democracy and, and to individuals. Phil, let's go back uh, to some of the things that I I'm noted on your website. Um, you say that it's an extraordinary time in the nation's history. I certainly agree with that. Uh, and you, but you also go on to say regarding the growing contempt between rulers and ruled. What do you see going on? 
Well, one of the interesting things that's, uh, that you see is, uh, well, for example, uh, Philip, the, the fellow who, who called in a few minutes ago, talking about the deep state, uh, talking about not being able to trust the CIA and so on and so forth. This is an attitude that you never saw, uh, what, uh, 20 years ago. Right. Uh, but now this is common parlance in, um, in any kind of public discourse. Uh, how much we're being controlled and the deep state and uh, that we don't know where the forces are that are really making the decisions. This is something that has changed. That's a real step-level change in American political culture. I think a, a healthy one, actually. And I think that's one of the great uh, contributions of Internet to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, political discourse. Um, a, a lot of it, of course, uh, is, uh, is bad information, poorly researched uh, information, and that's really the pity of it, because, of course, on, on Internet, anybody can say anything. But um, the, the, this sort of uh, element in political life has meant a growing distrust of politicians and especially, well, distrust of politicians, that's as old as, that's as, old as Adam. <laughs> right. But distrust of institutions, distrust of the presidency, of, uh, of the military, of uh, the, the different espionage agencies, that's something that's really new. And um, that's uh, what is really making this rift between governed and uh, governors. Do you think that... Uh, the things that were, may have been uncovered, say, during the Vietnam War, which started uh, what I would think some of this distrust, um, and then going on through Watergate and, and all the gates, you know, they, they attach the word gate to anything now yeah. to, to make to reference a conspiracy of some kind um, or a scandal of some kind. Do you think that's been going on uh, through, since the inception of the nation, yet we just didn't have the means or the communication networks or whatever it happened to be to be able to uh, get at some of this truth? Yeah, that, that's probably part of it. Although, you know, I, uh, I'm 60 years old. I was born in 59. And to me, the real break in trust between the people and the government was indeed Vietnam, because the, it was so obvious that the establishment in America had one agenda and the people had a very different one, and that the establishment was not forthcoming about their agenda. Uh, that, to me, really broke the consensus uh, in America. And I've seen in my lifetime, I've seen that rift only grow and grow. Nobody has really done much to heal it. Um, so I think, and then we have, for example, the revelations of uh, Snowden, that the government is actually spying on us, listening to our conversations, recording all of our, our emails and this and that. And that, you know, really makes uh, a deep impression on people and widens that rift a, uh, a good deal more, which is why I suppose the establishment has, has banished him to Russia. Um, and why I would imagine that a lot of people who could say something don't say anything. That's um, a very sad aspect of American life, but it's, uh, it's very real. Picking up on this content, contempt between rulers and the ruled, um, you also say it will end badly. What do you foresee? I foresee, if I had to make a prediction, if there's a real economic crisis, something that really affects everybody, a, a sort of uh, another uh, depression, then you're going to see some really ugly things happen in America because there is so much distrust of what the government is saying and doing. Um, and that, at that point, we might get the uh, the revolution that Chris Hedges uh, talks about uh, so often in his columns and speeches. Let's jump back to our listener line. This is good friend Barry from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Hey, Barry, welcome to the show. Hello there, JV. Hope everything's going great in Cooperstown. All good here, Barry. All good here. Yeah, I'm uh, just talking to Ryan. I just love talking with him. But anyway, um, 
I think, J.V. and your guest, the real erosion of Americans' trust was started with 2001 and the Twin Towers. Uh, we, you know, President George W., he tried to take it out and blame it on Iraq, and we've got to go kill Iraq. Well, 19 of, of the terrorists were from Saudi Arabia. Why in the world didn't we take it out on them? Well, that's a great point, Barry. Great point. What do you think about that, Phil? Mm. Well, I, I stick to my original point. Uh, to me, the the point of a real uh, a real break in trust between Americans and the government was uh, Vietnam. Because I remember before that, when I was growing up as a boy, and uh, people who worked in government were very expert and very knowledgeable, and our military was protecting us from the Russians, and nobody questioned this idea. This was a very this was a very solid set of ideas and values that you grow up with. After Vietnam, that changed. 2001 and, you know, the uh, 9-11 and so on, that has only added to it. I have, uh, by the way, Barry, thank you for that question and the phone call. Um, I have a very different uh, uh, idea and perception on why we went into Iraq. And someday when I'm a guest on somebody else's show... I'll talk about that. <laughs> Bring it. Let's talk uh, about Iran a little bit here, because you made a reference early on, and obviously your book uh, is focuses on Iran specifically. Um, and you said, I think the comment was, "Sound familiar?" Um, what's going on with Iran now? Do you think that uh, this whole false flag ops and this effort to try to uh, create a war between the United States and Iran is something that's underway? Yeah, I think. Uh that there are some elements in different places, different countries, who are trying to to get a war started between uh, the United States and Iran. They might be our own military, who knows? Uh, They might be uh, Middle Eastern elements. Um, It's it's hard to say. But that these um, uh, attacks on tankers that took place uh, in June, July, uh, were an attempt to get something going, I think that that really is unquestionable. Who is behind it? That's another question. Where does Saudi Arabia know? Um, our, our, our caller, Barry, mentioned Saudi Arabia. Where does Saudi Arabia fall into this? Would they want us to go to war with Iran? Well, they're, they're, of, course, uh, they're of course, enemies. Boy, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I don't know if uh, the instability and uh, unpredictability of war is something that they that they would like or not. Um, Saudi Arabia, of course, has a lot of different cards to play in a lot of different places. It's hard to say what exactly they would like uh, with regard to America and Iran. I'm going to change the topic here just a little bit. We've got about five more minutes uh, to chat. Um, when you, I want to ask you a little bit more about your writing. You self-publish your novels. Why do you do that? Is that the is that the uh, the changing in of the of the marketplace of the guard, maybe if you will, in in publishing? Um, what's the what's the idea of self publishing? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is a very much a changing of the guard for uh, for one reason because you know as with all my novels, I, first I tried to go through a mainstream publisher, but of course you know those guys get literally thousands of letters. Uh, uh, every month, and and that's that's just a rat race. Um, so I, I self-publish my novels, uh, and of course, self-publishing means that you uh, don't get uh, a very big audience or anything like that. But you know, uh, the good thing about writing fiction these days is that nobody does it for money; it's for love of the art, and uh, that's uh, one of the nice things about self-publishing. It's all your own your own uh, idea. There's no editor, no publisher in the middle who's trying to make it more commercial. Um, and also in, in my case, with uh, a novel that is, as I say, a mirror image of 9-11, no mainstream publisher is going to publish something like that. Uh, they, they're not interested in that. What mainstream publishers are, are interested anyway is, is another Hunger Games. They're interested in, in another Harry Potter they're not interested in a well-written novel that has something to say about our times and maybe is a little bit on the radical side. 
Um, so that's why I, I self-publish. Obviously, you had a choice when writing this book whether to write uh, just a nonfiction account of what you believe happened with 9-11 and the forces behind it versus the route, the route you chose, which was to create a novel that mirrors uh, the events and, and, and attempts to convey a message that uh, you may not have been able to convey in a nonfiction sense. What's that message and what do you want people to walk away with? One thing, as I say, that how history has stopped about how we don't know what's really going on um, and about how easy it is to manipulate the uh, establishment, uh, the government version of, for example, a a terrorist event. Um, And also, you know, in a novel... JB, you can stand back and you can synthesize. You know, we have plenty of information out there, tons of information, fine and well. A novel stands back and synthesizes and says, okay, what does all of this mean? And that's why uh, a novel about something like this is important. In my novel, I have the deep state, I have the truthers, I have the victims, I have the perpetrators, and you see the whole thing together. And, uh, And I'm very happy to say that I put all that together in just 215 pages. Um, I, uh, I pack a very tight suitcase when I write a novel. <laughs> Everything that's there has to be there. If you had to give uh, folks in the United States a little bit of advice to make some kind of effort to try to, try to stop some of this, uh, what would you say to them? Oof. I would say that the average person has very little uh, ability to do that. The only place where this can happen, and this is also connected to my book, is the people who are involved and who know something about what is going on at the deeper levels of government. Um, Those people are the ones who should speak up, who should try to get something done to try to draw attention. That's where it really has to happen. But for the average person, there's nothing to be done. That's a little gloomy, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. What's next on your uh, on your plate? New projects? Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, thinking of uh, uh, another novel, and uh, about two or three times a month, I write satirical poems about politics, and uh, I put them on my uh, website, and I put them on op-ed. opednews.com. And uh, so, anyways, yeah, I'm uh, always thinking of uh, my next project, my next big project. Um, um, not quite sure what it's going to be yet. So this book is called Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees. Give us your website where people can get a hold of the book and any other maybe social media or anything you'd like people to follow. Mm-hmm. Well, my website is uh, uh, philipkraski.com, and uh, they can get my novel uh, on online uh, at any uh, any online uh, bookshop. Uh, Amazon has both the paper edition and the Kindle edition, but uh, Goodreads has it, Barnes & Nobles has it, uh, all, it. It's on all the online sites. Phil, thanks so much for being here tonight. Fascinating conversation. Yes, J.B., I really enjoyed it. Let's do it again sometime. We certainly will. Again, Phil Kraske, his website is philipkraske.com. And I, I, I kind of lit some fuses there um, and kind of uh, ran the risk of uh, creating some incendiary um, chat comments, but everybody took it pretty well. I mean, you know, we try we try to uh, discuss things that are thought provoking here, whether it's uh, you know ghosts or Bigfoot or UFO or the fact that we might be being lied to by our government. Who sure. knows? You know, I mean, it's all part of the same thing. I, I we we know that we've been lied to. I mean, mm-hmm. that's fact. You know, the degree of which, and I'm not talking about anything specifically. I'm just saying in general, there have been lies told by our government, and uh, we know that happens. The question is, is how. Uh, you know, how deeply does it happen and how consequential are those lies? And, you know, so it's a good discussion. I appreciate Phil being on tonight. Well, and and, and the reality is we will never know. I, I, you know, I mean, people people are making these the, the shadowy men in the in the in the behind closed doors, you know, will probably they're they're true. Some emo- people say it's shadowy lizard uh Men or they aliens, do. They you know, do. it's something far more um, intriguing than just people. Um, David Icke, our uh, recent guest, you know, puts that point of view forward. I do want to. I do want to point out. We obviously have a tremendous amount of respect for the victims and families of not just the nine eleven attacks, but all 
terrorist attack attacks and of course the military that went to war um you know regardless of the reason they went on orders and they did their duty and we lost a lot of good folks uh so we have a tremendous amount of respect for those people and that'll never end here so just so everybody knows that um let's see what do we have coming up you said we've got uh we've got somebody talking about Getting rid of people's ghosts. What? Oh, Natasha Rosewood, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> She's a quantum healer and an inspirer of intuitive intelligence. Also an author. She's going to help listeners clear their ghosts from the past, alive or dead. So is she going to take calls? And she will take calls, and she'll help you work through some of your issues, uh, from what I understand. Okay. So that'll be tomorrow night's program. Of course, Friday will be a best of. As, as we look ahead till next week, we'll be talking about chupacabras, black pumas, which we... Didn't we chat? We did. We what did. was that last night? Two nights ago. Uh, was it with uh, Was it with Jeff Belanger? Was it with? It was with Jeff Belanger last night. Yeah, you know, we did. We did mention black pumas that uh, officially don't exist, but people seem to see them a lot. So and Michael Mays is just back from Area X, an area I think around the uh, Oklahoma Panhandle that is known for some pretty weird stuff involving uh, Sasquatch, um, I believe. So he'll have some firsthand accounts. And then also next week, Kathleen Martin, who is an author and a UFO researcher, will talk to us about what we should do if we've been abducted. If we can remember that we've been abducted. A lot of people don't uh, know that that's the case. I watched the um, the uh, uh, Robert uh, Lazar documentary. Did you see that? Nope. Yeah, good one, actually. On, um, on I think it was on Netflix I saw it. Uh, very interesting story. Um, we'll have to have somebody on to talk about that as well. All right, that's going to do it for tonight, folks. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's always great having you along. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at J.V.J. Paranormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.